listening to Queer Story Podcast, the history they didn't teach you in school. My name's Oso, and we've got an amazing show for you today. The riotous truths, the origin story of this Pride Month. I originally wanted to release this queer story on the anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, June 28th. However, there is just so many layers and Venn diagrams, as I'll get into later, and mistellings and whitewashing and straight up bullface lies, especially in the fiction that has been created to tell the story, such as some of these movies. Um, <laughs> I don't know if y'all have seen Where Pride Began the 2015 movie by Roland Emmerich on how the gay liberation movement and the uh, the time in the 60s or whatever. <laughs> I wanted to force myself to watch this film for the uh, purpose of, of this podcast, but I, I really didn't need to. Everywhere you look, Wikipedia, other online sources, brief summaries of the Stonewall riots, all whitewash and eliminate people of color and key figures or saints as I and other gay men from from the day <laughs> refer to uh, Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, the wonderful Miss Major who is still an activist to this day, and Stormé de Lavari. Um, this does not it goes to mention that this does not mention all of the black and brown, transgender, drag-wearing, street youth patrons that were there at the Stonewall Inn. Um, see, the thing is, we all know that white people like to take credit for things that they didn't do. It's just a fact. <laughs> we got Elvis. We got NASA. Hidden figures, anyone? Miley Cyrus, a recent addition. I'm leaving out countless, countless other things. Obviously, genres of music like jazz, um, rock and roll. We all know this. The gay movement isn't any different. As, as, a, as a culture that is whitewashed, once we face this fact, we can peel back that falsity and really see the resplendence of what the energy and magic of the rage of powerful people oppressed can accomplish. Doors were blown wide open for all of us. This episode is out of gratitude for that rage and strength. As always, I'd like to start this Queer Story podcast by thanking the ancestors, San Silvia Rivera and Saint Marcia Pay It No Mind Johnson. Thank you for your tireless efforts of opening doors for your sisters and your trans family knowing that we needed a place and that we belonged and putting your lives and your homes on the line. Thank you to the living elders, Miss Major. Thank you for all of your tireless activism and speaking out and bitterness and truth. Thank you. Today, we will focus on the retelling of the story of the Stonewall Riots. If you were at the Stonewall Riots and want to add to or detail the story, please contact me. 
queerstorypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to make sure that the story is correct and listen to you as I'm piecing it together from various stories I've read. What I've learned from for this episode are the testimonies of Silvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Miss Major, Titus Montlavo, and Mark Segal, who, via PBS, called out that film from 2015 as, quote, uninterested in any history that doesn't revolve around its white, male, stereotypically attractive protagonist. It almost entirely leaves out the women who participated in the riots and helped create the Gay Liberation Front, which included youth, trans people, lesbian separatists, and people from all other parts of the spectrum of our community. So let's dive into today's queer story. Once upon a time, being gay and being thought of or seen as a crossdresser was illegal, as recently in the state of New York as 2011. Thanks to laws made in the mid-19th century, clothing choices were limited to the drag of two binary genders. These current-day bathroom bills aren't too far off from the U.S. history's invested interest in what's between everyone's legs. According to transgender historian Susan Stryker, these laws made in the 1850s were a new development specific to gender presentation. The three-piece rule. One must wear three pieces of gender-appropriate clothing. This was a commonly enforced law. These laws effectively gave power to the police to enforce binary gender roles upon civilians who may have had multiple fluid and or queer genders, which the police enforced liberally. This is the climate we find ourselves in in 1969. In 1969, the cops would harass people on the street and raid bars and events demanding to see if the genitals matched the clothing, to which if they didn't match to the cops' understanding, that is, folks would be fined or arrested. In New York City in the 60s, this was certainly the case. This was an era of McCarthyism, police raids, removal of LGBTQ people from parks and public places, arrests, and a general loathing and ignorance about queer and gender variant folks by wholesome hetero America. It was widely accepted that homosexuality and the transgender identities that were classified as homosexual were mental disorders and many folks were institutionalized at one time or another. The FBI kept lists of homosexual people and establishments that were used to out people at work and subsequently keep them unemployable. Trans folks of all genders were routinely fined, beaten, arrested, and murdered for wearing clothing of the quote opposite sex. This was a time in which the majority of gender non-conforming people, particularly male signed at birth, feminine people who identified as queens, had absolutely no place in society. Queer people across the spectrum were exposed, harassed, institutionalized, jailed, and murdered legally under the laws of many states. Once upon a time on 53 West Christopher Street in the Big Apple, during the summer of 69, the world changed for queer and gender non-conforming people forever. Today's queer story is centered around the experiences of the trans women of color, street kids, and gender non-conforming lesbians who frequented the mafia-run dive known as the Stonewall Inn. Now, before we dive into the story of the Stonewall Inn, I want to first mention Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which had taken place in 1966, three years before Stonewall. In San Francisco's Tenderloin District, trans folks flocked to Compton Cafeteria. 
One of the reasons they hung out there was because they were not allowed to kick it at the gay bars. This is an important part of this queer story. Gay communities, even in the queer meccas like San Francisco and New York City, were generally transphobic and exclusionary. At Compton's, the cops would frequently raid and arrest people based on their if their clothing matched their genitals. Until enough was enough and a picket against such raids was set in motion by the queens and kings who spent time there. The picket was unsuccessful, but the outburst of pure, raw, transgender rage was not. For a couple of nights, the trans folks rioted at the cafeteria and the police were called in. The time and dates of the riots are unknown, as police records are no longer around and newspapers did not cover this story. Compton's riots opened Pandora's box of possibilities. Three years later, on the other coast, the rage of trans folks of color pushed all of us out of America's closet once and for all. The setting of today's queer story. Greenwich Village a neighborhood where gay, lesbian, trans, and unhoused folks flocked to after the First World War. Because of the lingering effects of the Prohibition era, the mob ran most of the underground joints and speakeasies. This was very good for queer folks because drinking and so-called immoral activities, you know, like S-ing D, finger banging, and basically looking better than you in some fabulous evening wear, found a natural home underground. There in the village, the classic New York queer subculture flourished for two decades. The 50s brought McCarthyism and social repression, which only helped attract beat poets, artists, and radical people to the area, expanding the community. By the early 60s, Mayor Robert F. Wagner Jr. felt the urge, probably stemming from his unmet needs of second dick, to purge New York City of all gay bars in anticipation for the 1964 World's Fair. This led to police entrapment of gay men and gender clothing policing of trans people. The Stonewall Inn was owned by the Genovese crime family who had invested a whopping $3,500 to convert it from a hetero nightclub to a bar where Latinx and black drag queens, semi-queens, and street kids would spend time. It had no liquor license, so the mob paid the cops off weekly. Reportedly, the bar had no running water, overflowing toilets, and filthy glasses. But it was the place where queens, kings, and so-called cross-dressers, queer street kids, could congregate indoors and dance. There were two dance floors, and it is said the music of Motown were the kind of jams you would hear there. None of that Beach Boys 60s stuff. Police raids were frequent at the bars of the village, so there was a system in place to inform bar patrons of police presence. In the case of the cops, the black lights would shut off and the white lights would flicker. This indicated that folks should stop dancing and touching each other if they were and just play it cool. According to Miss Major, a lifelong trans activist and original Stonewall girl, the patronage was mostly black and Latinx trans folks and street kids. She also claims that gay men would rarely visit the bar. Imagine gay white men. A fact corroborated with by Titus Montlavo, a former semi-queen who spent time at Stonewall when they were 16. Montlavo told Out Magazine at least 70%. The Spanish group was the delightful ladies. The black group was Blackwell. The majority of people at Stonewall were either drag queens or gay men of color. You could never go to Julius, a nearby bar, unless you were extremely conservative and well-dressed. We were not allowed there. 
According to the whitewashed gay dominant narrative, you will find across all forms of historic media, Stonewall allegedly was a, quote, even mix of gay, lesbian, white, black, and Hispanic people. Remember Compton's? Gay folks routinely rejected trans women, drag queens, and drag kings. This was no different in New York. There were gay bars around, but the Stonewall Inn was where the queens were. It is recorded that on June 28th at 1.20 a.m., four undercover police, two regular police, Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine and De Detective Charles Smythe entered Stonewall and declared, Police, we're taking the place! A handful of other mob-owned queer bars had been shut down in the village that summer. They thought that night would be just like the rest. They should have stayed home and watched Johnny Carson. <laughs> the cops worked the routine. They tried to shut down Stonewall like they had the other bars by forcing people to prove their genders, taking IDs, and arresting what would end up being 13 people. The actual riot began all thanks to a mixture of the rage of the queens and the resistance of Stormé de Lavari, a black stone butch stud talented drag king. As the cops tried to arrest Stormé, Stormé resisted. Onlookers said they saw a stone bush aggressively wrestling the cops back and forth from the front of the bar to a car, to the front of the bar, to a car, all the way to the paddy wagon. When Stormé was beaten over the head by an officer and stuffed into the paddy wagon with three other queens, Stormé cried out to all who could hear, Why don't you guys do something? At this point, the onlooking gay folks from the gay bars in the village were yelling to the cops, Let them go! Let them go! And pigs! And faggot cops! For the folks gathered outside, when Stormé cried out, people fought back. Inside the bar, according to Titus Montlavo, when this fight started on the corner of the club, quote, at the end of the bar, one very tall Spanish queen named Joey and a couple of black drag queens were at the corner at the time. The other testimonies, including that of Silvia Rivera, saw Marsha P. Pay It No Mind Johnson throw the first shot glass. So it sounds like many folks started fighting back around the same time. Different patrons saw different folks, and all the folks that started that riot were Latinx and Black. This cannot be forgotten. This explosion brought the gay onlookers to the riots. They saw the first wave of protest explode from the Queen, Stormé, and the street kids. They saw how the outcasts of the world of even homosexuals fought back. This was a moment of experiential solidarity. Cops and a couple of reporters were barricaded in the bar as protesters rioted outside. Bricks were hurled, coins, dog shit, high heels, beer bottles. The outraged queers tried to overturn cop cars and the paddy wagon and pull a parking meter out of its post to be used as a battering ram to get at the folks locked inside. They set fire to the bar with the cops and the reporters inside. Gay men who generally loathed the queens fought for and with them on this night, rallying against the cops who oppressed all of them. It is reported that the cops were outnumbered by 500 to 600 people. Silvia Rivera, the godmother of the queens and unhoused trans youth, said, quote, It was the greatest moment of my life. Famously, the queens and the kids did their can-can. We are the Stonewall girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear no underwear. We show our pubic hair. Right around the same time, the tactical patrol force showed up. The tactical 
patrol force used their force to try to control and subdue the crowd. Many people were beaten with nightsticks and knocked out cold. By 4 a.m., the riot had died down and folks sat in the electric air of change along Christopher Street. That same electricity kept its charge the following night, with tags of gay power and drag power scrawled all over the charred front of Stonewall Inn. That night, more people joined, tourists and folks that weren't even queer, just those who wanted to fight the cops. It was remarked that on the next night, there was a visible insurgence of queer public displays of affection like never before seen. On this night, thousands showed up. This was the night people got buck wild. San Silvia saw St. Marcia climb up a lamppost and draw a bag of heavy objects on the windshield of a car, smashing it, the queen of queens. The riot continued through the night until the tactical police force or whatever showed up again, but the damage had been done. The big gay cat was out of the big gay bag and would never be pushed back in again. The following year was the first Pride event, the Christopher Street Day Parade and Festival. Now, since this is a podcast about the Stonewall Riots, I'll speak briefly to what information I collected about the following year and years and exclusion of the trans women of color who were the initial instigators of gay liberation. During the following year, an activist movement co-created by Sylvia, Marsha, Michael Brown of the Mattachine Society, Dirk Lietz, Martha Shelley, Lois Hart, Bob Martin, Marty Robinson, Carla J., and Bob Kohler, the Gay Liberation Front. Brown authored a pamphlet called The Hairpin Drop Heard Round the World about the riots, and it allowed the Mattachine Society to capitalize off of the momentum of the riots. The GLF organized throughout 1970, and born from it were various caucuses, the Gay Activist Alliance, the GAA, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, and Lesbian Liberation Committee, among other committees that formed for gay liberation. The GAA, while being initially organized by gay men and women and trans folks, queens, began to adopt the respectability politics that characterized the ousting of Sylvia, Marcia, Miss Major, and other queens and cross-dressers, sex workers, and street kids. The very same people that instigated the riots that prompted the liberation in the first place. In fact, these sensible gays worked very hard to exclude trans women from the movement in subsequent Pride events for years after the riots. According to Miss Major, quote, The sad thing about all of that was that the gay and lesbian community took away from us and just completely whitewashed us into the background as if we didn't exist and weren't there. They even claimed it was their bar when you would rarely even see gay people there. What strikes me is a mixture of intersecting realities and narratives that actually did bring our LGBTQ community together. Gays rejected trans people. White people reject black and brown people. So the story goes. Trans folks, we we weren't the same as them. We made things unsafe for them because we can't so easily pass in the world. Rejecting us was a multi-headed beast. Self-preservation, misogyny, trans misogyny, phobia of sexualities that may not be gay, and racism. 
The rage that night that came from black and brown queens shook something in the white gay community. They were compelled to implore the cops to let the queens and kings go. They jumped into the fight the following night. Those gay people needed this spark. I've been seeing it as a Venn diagram. Queens who were black and brown were not permitted by society to have gainful employment or living accommodations, ever. Gay men and women, particularly white and passing folks, could be employed and have housing until the FBI lists publicly took those privileges away. Class and gender privilege divided these groups until the laws lumped them together. That night of Stonewall was the Venn diagram of rage and disgust. It didn't equalize us. It didn't make the queens acceptable to the gays overnight. It was simply a moment of overlapping rage. A moment where gay people could see their struggle in the people they looked down upon. The gays needed change from police harassment just as much as the queens. They just couldn't rise up until that night. Yes, they took over the story and in many ways historically own it. Yes, they took up space in parades and festivals for years to come. Yes, they rewrote it to look more gay and less transgender, more white and less black and brown. Yes, it is hurtful, wrong, and super fucked up. It's the effects of colonization, the remix. It's yet another example of how the labor of black and brown folks has changed the world as we know it and how the disease of white toxic masculinity needs to hold credit. This is where another crux exists. When it opened up everything for the gay and white folks, they tried to keep it. Consequentially, year after year, this pulled more gay and lesbian people into a place of personal pride. I can't help but think about how this whole story impacts the spectrum of the LGBTQIA community today. I can also see it was a combination of the spark and that bullshit that slowly expanded solidarity to the extent of having a larger community that refers to itself as LGBTQIA. I don't have answers to these intersecting realities of privilege and oppression and how these white gay people capitalized off of the labor of these trans women of color. How these trans women of color spent their lives working for the, the youth, the trans youth, to have safe places to live. They hustled for them. They created the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionary House and housed them. Sylvia Rivera herself said she lost her housing for gay liberation. Marsha worked in ACT UP, a survivor for a long time of HIV, fighting for her community and just because she loved life. We have to listen to their voices and we have to include the entire narrative when we talk of Stonewall so that we don't cheat ourselves and those who came before us with their power of the resplendence of their powerful rage and their riotous truth. Revolution now! 
Silvia Rivera, San Silvia, gracias. That was at the end of her speech in the 1973 Pride festivities where she was actively being booed. She still fought for gay power. I want to say just a couple more things about this queer story before we dive into talking with Colin. And that is, it's truly disgusting to see how this story has been whitewashed and rewritten. That this is the story that gets handed down. But I want, with this queer story, to shift focused from that narrative and towards how the entire story is about the power and strength of trans women of color. So... Once upon a time, black and Latinx queens and kings changed everything for everyone forever. They created the original festivities. Pride festivals and parades now attract and include more folks than ever. And during the month of June, people rejoice in who they are and how they love and how good we all look. Moreover, People are listening to the whole narrative and questioning the story, hungry for our truth. And it isn't over. The story is complicated. Gay cisgendered men, especially white men, do get massive privilege in comparison to trans women of color. There is still trans misogyny in the gay community and the lesbian community. Old issues have transformed yet persisted over time. And it is still true that trans women of color are fighting and creating so much for themselves and all of us while still being targeted by violence and murdered by hateful ignorance. This story is exalted by their strength and power. It wouldn't be a queer story that changed the world without all of its parts. Funny how a lonely day can make a person say, what good is my life? Funny how a breaking heart can make me start to say, what good is my life? Funny how I often seem to think I'll find another dream in my
I feel afraid. I think of what a mess I've made of my life. Crying over my mistakes, forgetting all the breaks I've had in my life. I was put on earth to be a part of this great world as me and my Shirley Bassey with This Is My Life, a 1968 classic, an anthem fit for a queen. (laughs) Now, back to the show. You're listening to Queer Story, and um, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about what, what the story's all about. I'm here with my friend Colin, who is going to introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. So please take it away. Hi, my name is Colin. I live in. I live on the land of the Nisqually, Scots, and Shehalis folks. I'm also known as Olympia, Washington. I work. I work at a drop-in center for young folks here, and I. Also do vocals in a band called Baggage here, and sometimes I teach people how to sing or something. Rad. Yeah. So I invited Colin here today because we're talking about this really amazing and important queer story, the history of the Stonewall Riots and all the truths and interweavings and lies that they're in. Um, The interconnectedness, if you will. And yeah, so I'm really excited. So, okay. What I'm curious about is just your knowledge on Stonewall as someone who listens to the stories handed down and, and what like what you think about some of these pieces of what we heard today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my thoughts are... Um, it seems like from the stories that we read today that there are, like, multiple people, people who saw, like, different people throughout the first class. 
Mm. A lot of people say it was Martin That's Johnson. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say it was someone else. Some of the movies, those stupid ass movies. <laughs> yeah, some of the stupid ass movies say it was someone else. <laughs> say, say that it was our show and depict that it was a young blonde white boy mm-hmm. that threw the first brick or whatever when we also well know that there was shit thrown as well and high heels. Yeah, and so for me, I think that. For me, it's not. And then it's not necessarily like we know who specifically, so much as like all the stories that have been handed down outside of like Hollywood's portrayal have been it was a brown person or a black person who who threw that first class and then got people excited to like do shit. They just hit their level, their threshold of like we're not gonna fucking take this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they didn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And other people, like, this is the part, the crux, this part that like I keep thinking about, which, you know, I wanna, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it, is that the cops were fucking with so many people based on misogynistic, fucked up laws. Mm-hmm. Trans people, gay people, with a very specific lens on brown and black bodies, yeah. period, always, because of the racism of this country mm-hmm. and place. Also at that time, and especially in New York, mm-hmm. probably like uh, black and black and like black and brown bodies who are who were like probably like working class poor mm-hmm. if they were working class at anything, and then like their families like turn their backs on them. Yeah. <coughs> so a lot of the stories of the people that were in Stonewall and why they were hanging out there is is they were street kids. They were folks that mm-hmm. had to leave home. Because of the fact that they were gender nonconforming, they were queens, mm-hmm. and they all of the people that we're talking about are folks of color, Latinx, and Black folks. So yeah. Um, but the the thing that not but and the thing that I keep thinking about is that spark, that amazing power, and that labor that's done by these folks and everybody that all these elders, Miss Major, Silvia Rivera, um, Marsha P. Joey, that name came up, Stormé, mm-hmm. um, all these people, um, was it was just so needed by these other people that had shunned them and been completely terrible to them and still were terrible to them subsequently because of just general... <laughs> I mean, it really it does boil down to misogyny and it does boil down to respectability politics. Yeah. You know? Like, at that time... People were, like, organizing and stuff, and people were, like, really defining what it was, redefining what it meant to be, like, a respectable gay. Yeah, conservative. not respectable Ooh. gay. Like, we just want to be like you, Well, it's like, gays. Yeah, well, one of the, them said is if you didn't wear, like, a certain kind of outfit, you weren't invited in. It was Titus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Titus said if you did not look like this, you cannot get in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um... Which... For me, it's interesting as, like, a brown, poor, like, disabled person, like, whenever I go into, like, really heavily gentrified parts of, like, any city and I see, like, dress codes for shit, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, well, like, what does it mean that you can't have, like, no red bandanas or, like, no, like, sports caps or, like, no, like, low-hanging pants or, like, wallet chains when there's, like, 
white dudes playing trivia in your like bougie ass bar with like sports hats, low hanging jeans, and wallet chains. But the second that a brown person comes in, you're like, mm. have you noticed like our 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 dress code? And that's very much like what it was. In my opinion, similar, not the same, but similar to, like, what it, like, what they were doing at the time, which being, like, what the other gay bar was doing at the time, which being, like, you don't look this way, so, like, you cannot sit with us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that makes me, it makes me wonder all the reasons why these folks, why this dynamic developed in the first place, and, and, and I think about how it's, like, these gay dudes have been told their whole life there's something fucking wrong with being gay and therefore they're completely like internally homophobic and misogynistic because gayness is effeminate and that's what the society says. Mm-hmm. So they're misogynistic against women and they're also misogynistic against trans women, especially because they're the most utmost gay <laughs> and furthermore, or to them in the time frame of what words oh, are yeah. being used. Um, and then furthermore, they, they it was a self like a selfish self-preservation technique of like, if I'm not sitting next to the drag queen, then no one will know that I'm gay and yeah, I can be because... respectable and I can be moving through this space without, with minimal harassment. Because I'm sitting next to a fucking Nelly queen. And, and that was, that's been something that's happened so much in, in queer history and queer history is that like, um, uh, in England, Quentin Crisp, the naked civil servant, similar thing. he, it was with the Nelly Queens that when they would hang out at, at, at cafes and things, they put makeup on and they were very visible and other gay men had wanted nothing to do with them. And Quentin Crisp that just developed himself very much an aversion towards people's openness, basically to mm-hmm. the point where he said some fucking fucked up shit in his later years. But we won't talk about that today. <laughs> yeah. That's not a podcast. It is <laughs> definitely another episode. Um, but it's it's a similar theme of the, the the gay folks policing the the more effeminate like versions of what they're seeing reflected back at themselves is what the society is saying. All of you are lumped together. Mm-hmm. You're this thing. You're either like effeminate Nelly queens or you're like leather daddies fisting each other. <laughs> yeah. And then all but of, fisting is for everyone. I'm fisting going to say. is for everyone. And even attempting fisting is fisting. So don't it get is. discouraged out yeah. there, everyone. So anyway. Popper just help you out a lot. <laughs> I, I like, I have fancy lube. Lots of lube. I... And friendship, you know? <laughs> yes. yes. Friendship and lube. So, and gloves, because no glove, no love. Yeah, no glove, no love. Yeah. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on... Um, the the fact that these riots did create the spark that that led up to where we're at today. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things that are fucked up with where we're at today. Oh yeah. And also, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are about the entire story of Stonewall of these the spark that came from the hearts and experiences and lives of Black and Brown queens and people who desperately also needed that to happen and all the fucked up shit that's been happened in the last, you know, 40 years. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I think, I think I know where we're going. You were, we, I was talking about how, like, 
Stonewall is like a movement that was where the, the spark of that movement was like <clears throat> really cool for the time that it was in be, sorry it was really cool for the time <laughs> for the time that it was in um, because of the fact it was one of the first times that like white people's righteous anger at the time who were just like witnessing it from like an outsider perspective well like an insider perspective we're watching outsiders getting fucked with and we're really just like a witness to like their righteous anger and the energy that they were creating and like starting to like fight back um and then they decided it was the first time that they like really like witnessed that anger and was like it was congruent with theirs (coughs) and then they started um and then it was one of the first times that, like, white people actually, like, stood up. Like, white queer people stood up for, like, black and brown people because for a moment in time, their righteous anger was congruent with theirs. They were just as pissed. White people, that's one of the first times that, like, white queer people were just as pissed off at the treatment of, like, brown queer people as brown people were about getting fucked with by cops mm. and systems that seek to destroy them all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, like, that's what that spark was. Um, I referenced it earlier as, like, w- like, op- like, oppressed people with privilege, like, seeing people who were, who were, like, not oppressed, um, and bearing witness to what they were going through, and then, like, truly, like, beholding that moment, and being like, this is so fucked up, we have to do something. This is so fucked up. We have to do something. Oh my god, this is fucked up. We have to do something. We're doing something now? We're doing something now. We're doing something now. And then they did it. And, yeah. When I think about, like, people coming together in solidarity and in movement, I think of, like... There is that critical mass moment where shit happens. And then also, like, when you look at people throughout history, especially people from the Stonewall movement, Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Miss Major, so many other people whose, like, name are escaping me right now, um, like, took, like, that fire in their belly in that moment, um, and took it other places, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um and I think that and I think that that's really important and um like for me like I don't know, like not so repetitive, but I think that like Stonewall is like like one of the first movements that was like one of those most like early recognized movements of like that was like started by queen by like queens and like brown people and like all of those overlapping things and for it and then like white people just like happened to get involved like it, i think it, it was happening like either way at that point um and that was like the moment that white people got involved um and then like from those like from that spark like it created motion and created like movement or synergy or whatever the fuck, you know? Mm. And then those people who were involved in that 
moment, like, took that and did other things with it. Um, to, like, help out their communities and then to, con- like, to continue that, like, realization and movement of, like, raising their community up and no longer putting up with that shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that I see here, too, is that Sylvia and Marsha and Miss Major to this day <coughs> do and did so much activism that did change the lives for everybody mm-hmm. and purposely did it for the gay movement and for that and so and was relentlessly gay yeah well the, it was interesting because you know, Sylvia always showed up being like what the, the, <coughs> the reason why there's a T on it is because of her a lot of people say and, and to, to be <laughs> simple about it mm-hmm. but you know it's 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 as true as that um but seeing other parts of the the gay umbrella the lgbtq umbrella taking it and well because middle class gay dudes did something over here like you know the lesbians who were being shunned from the women's movement in a lot of ways and had to kind of create their own group and then became turfy. It was always very exclusionary, mm-hmm. but still gaining momentum. It was. It's so strange how the exclusionary aspect remained, and momentum was still achieved by that initial spark, and by the sparks of the civil rights movement before that. I mean, the mm-hmm. civil rights movement was really the the main spark that started all these wildfires in oh, the sixties yeah. and seventies and onward. Totally, I agree with that. Um, but yeah. <sighs> it's interesting. It's interesting to look at this history and try to be like, what is the closest thing to the truth that I can find via every resource and debunk the whitewashing of it and debunk mm-hmm. all the pieces and actually go, this is... Debunking whitewashing is not an attack on anyone no. Even though it could be. <laughs> and in a lot of ways should be. Maybe if you wanted to go eye for an eye. But really... Let's go for eye for an eye. Also, just debunking the whitewashing gives people their history back. Mm-hmm. It gives you your truth that makes you part of what you are part of it is being a queer person or being a trans person or being a brown queer trans person. It gives people our histories back. And it gives the umbrella of LGBTQ a very vital piece of history back. And so it's just like, let's try to hold that more so than this other f- <laughs> this other stories that you're going to find in the movies and yeah, on the Wikipedia and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That's all the time we have for Queer Story Podcast today. Thanks so much, Colin, for being on the show. Check out Colin's band, Baggage. They're around Olympia and taking the world. Thanks so much for listening. You can get in touch with us at queerstorypodcast at gmail.com and queerstorypodcast.com in general to subscribe. Thank you so much and be well.